Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Hey, Rob, what's up? Um, I'm feeling really good. I mean, it's like we really have been working overtime over the last couple of months. And it's really, you know, it's so satisfying when you spend time on a project and you see it start to come to fruition. You see it starting to, you know, it starts as an idea. Mm -hmm. You're taking notes, you're having meetings, and then you slowly see it turn into like a real tangible thing, you know, something that people can see and experience. I mean, that's why, that's why I got into this business. You know, I love it. Just, it's just a great feeling. Yeah. Now you're telling me, I, um, I, I feel really fulfilled. Um, pretty excited. We've had a lot of long nights. Yo, a lot of, yeah. you know, some people, some people doubted us along the way. Hi haters. Uh, but here we are. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. So that, that reality show, the activist, I just, to see, I saw the first commercial. I was really thought it was very inspiring. You know, that, that whole pitch process of pitching that and creating that was so difficult. So it was really great to see that, you know, start to see people start to experience that. I've been pretty busy with other stuff. I didn't really check into like the reaction from online. I'm sure it was really positive, but I haven't really, haven't really looked into it much, but either way, I'm just, I'm happy to, I'm happy to see it start to turn into a real thing. Yeah. Well, we, we tried to gear it toward kind of the online activists too. So I think I can't imagine it would backfire. Yeah. I'm sure everyone was really into it. Yeah. The scoring mechanism um, to kind of determine who is the best activist and and quantifying their performance in terms of post-performance. I just think that's a no-brainer. Who is yeah. going to take issue with that? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure. I'll check into it later, but I'm pretty sure everyone is really into that idea. And so that was just really exciting. Of course, uh, of course it was 9-11. It was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And <laughs> that was the other thing that I was kind of really distracted by this week. And once again, I mean, we've talked about this before, but seeing seeing George W. Bush's speech um, at the event commemorating the United 93 crash just reminded me once again that, uh, you know, this this guy, George W. Bush, obviously, you know, I didn't politically, I didn't always agree with the what he did, the things that he said. But again, just a class, just a pure class act. And I really just did get I was I found myself getting quite emotional yesterday watching this watching this george w bush speech and uh i gotta say i kind of missed the guy you know uh talk about leadership um yeah you know from people like him to giuliani uh we all remember where we were on 9-11 and the weeks and months afterward and just it was kind of like a a flashback we think back to that somber day uh and now we're here we are 20 years later with a fabled you know stoic leader reflecting on an attack on all of us really an attack on our freedoms and you know i don't really remember kind of what happened after that or in between no. um, i'm sure everything was fine but um yeah it's uh it's great to see him back in the spotlight because that's a that's the kind of leadership we need back at the helm uh in, in this country i often thought about it during the you know the the donald trump administration the way that like america really needed that kind of moral conservative leadership, not just from George W. Bush, but the whole crew. You know, I, I really found myself missing them. Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Ashcroft, Condoleezza Rice, all the all these people. Bring them back. Bring them all yeah, back. They should. I mean, that's maybe something that Biden could take a look at. I don't know if he wants to expand his cabinet or wants to even re- reach out to the more sensible, moderate conservatives like them. 
uh, that could be something that they could kind of take a look at maybe in a second term kind of situation. Uh, that's a that's a that's an administration that'll heal the nation. Yeah. And I guess the really disappointing thing was seeing people kind of joking around, you know, online, engaging in sort of conspiratorial stuff. Really, really unfortunate to see people still, you know, 20 years later, making these kinds of offensive claims Dude, was quite upsetting. Me. Especially at a time like this, we're ending the Afghanistan war. We went in, we kicked ass. It's the American way. And I, the, the audacity of people to suggest that really the Saudis were behind it the entire time. Unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable. And you know, who cares if John Ashcroft started flying private in July 2001? I mean, that's not, we fly private all the time. It's very comfortable. It's not a big deal. It doesn't mean anything. Welcome, everyone. It's actually episode 78 of The Insurgents. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. What's, what's up? What is up? Are you asking me or are you asking like the audience? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Not much is up with me, if that's what you were asking. Are you watching some, uh, sports, some sports ball today? I know it's big NFL yeah. day. Of course. Yeah, this is the best day of the year because it's you know, yeah. furthest away from the end of the season. It's great. Um where we still on a day where we still have football it's great so the first sunday kickoff sunday is fantastic had red zone on all day um my beloved cleveland browns did not win which is not really surprising because they've lost the opener like 14 years in a row now so aren't they supposed uh, to be really good this year though yeah they just some they just don't win openers it's really weird it's kind of a rope-a-dope um, thing maybe they're just lulling everyone into a false sense of security maybe in, in classic Browns fashion, they <laughs> held the lead the entire game and then gave it away at the end. <laughs> so that's that's how my Sunday went. But last night I watched this movie called Malignant. Uh, it's on HBO Max. I don't know. Uh, from uh, My friends in Ontario tell me there's like different movie release things. Like you guys don't always get them right away. Uh, do you have access to this movie? <laughs> Malignant. We don't. We don't actually have movies here. Um, you don't have electricity. <laughs> exactly. No, I'd, I, it might be on HBO. I don't know. I don't have HBO. Go. I, just I remember there was something an HBO Max movie where a buddy in Ontario said that he wasn't going to be able to get it for a few weeks because maybe of it was the Snyder the release. Uh, maybe uh, it might. I have saw been you that. bitching about this movie though. Is it not? It fucking sucked, dude. Yeah. Ugh. Yes, and like now I got all the 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 film guys upset because I said it was the worst movie Uh-oh. I've watched in a few years, and you all these people who's Twitter. like that's not good. Yeah, the people who've like you know made their personality watching movies like are really upset. It's like, haha, this is what somebody who only watches three movies a year thinks, and it's like, well, actually, it's probably closer to two. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> jokes on you, pal. Yeah. No, it's I like I like James Wan, and I watched I wanted to watch it because I like I like what he does, and I like his cinematography, and I like. His, there's some of the shots that he does and on, on in that respect it was fantastic and people were like well he was just trying to do a campy horror movie and yes i saw that but it was also really poorly executed and that's what sucks this idea that people 
who don't like it didn't understand what he was doing. It was so frustrating because <laughs> it's like, yeah, I I understand campy horror and I yeah. like it when it's done well. Like Sam Sam Raimi's really good at that, but this just wasn't done well. Like James Wan does like more. I don't I don't know how to describe a movie like The Conjuring, which I thought was really fucking good and i loved it a lot and it had the aesthetic of a movie like that but some of the execution and delivery of some of the lines were just they fell so flat the acting was terrible the music didn't really seem to fit i don't know and the plot was just kind of (laughs) ludicrous not that all horror movies make sense but this was just kind of like comical by the end i was laughing if you want a good comedy check out malignant Well, it seems divisive because I had people I saw I checked yeah. this out when this post and you had a lot of people agreeing with you wholeheartedly and a lot mm-hmm. of people like vehemently disagreeing. So it seems like yeah. seems very divisive. I don't know. I'll check it out and I'll I'll see I'll see if your review holds up. I can't I do know. film film stuff. I just don't care enough. Yeah. It's just not something I'm passionate about. I like I will watch I'm pretty picky about the movies I watch, but that's like it. I don't really care if anyone else likes something a lot or dislikes something a lot. It doesn't impact what I think about. People just like lose their minds if you don't like the movie that they have decided is good. It's weird. Yeah. I've been rewatching Lost. Were you a Lost guy? No. I was really, really obsessed with it when it was on TV and ended up being very like disappointed in the ending to the point that it kind of negatively colored my entire enjoyment of the entire series, which I spent many years being really into and researching all the theories and looking all frame by frame the scenes to try and find all the different clues and stuff. I was really mm-hmm. one of those guys, but I have been enjoying rewatching it. Those first couple of seasons are, are really excellent. And, you know, we talked about September 11th, like there's been kind of a conversation uh, around some of like the American pop culture post September 11th and how, you know, we can see how, how it, it cast this really wide shadow over a lot of everything that was going on in, in sort of American film and TV. And Lost, I think, is kind of underrated in terms of its uh, its kind of post-9-11 cultural uh, imprint. But uh, I really did enjoy those first couple of seasons. I mean, I've been having fun uh, re-watching it, and it's kind, of, it's kind of nice to re-watch it while not getting too caught up in, you know, all the mysteries and stuff and kind of just trying to enjoy all the twists and turns as it happens. Uh, that's been kind of fun. That's been kind of fun lately. So on the podcast today, folks, we've got Adam Johnson, Adam Johnson of Citations Needed and the column on Substack. Really awesome conversation with Adam. And, you know, Citations Needed and the work that Adam does really what I think covers really well the way that you know mainstream media in, in the U.S. especially functions and how the media kind of creates these narratives and what the purpose of these narratives are and you know how the media especially uses language in order to sort of you know create create consent to uh, tell these certain stories. Uh, it's really, really vital sort of uh, media analysis that he does. So he was really able to, uh, it was really great to have him come on and break down a lot of the way that the media has functioned, like in the post 9-11 period, uh, you know, recently when it comes to the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, in terms of the economic stuff, uh, the labor, the so-called labor, labor shortage and everything like that, we've, which we've heard a lot about in the media. Really good conversation with Adam. Uh, he's going to be joining the show in just a couple of minutes. Before Adam gets here, though, Jordan, uh, this didn't because this didn't come up in the conversation. I just wanted to get a few quick thoughts from you because we've talked about this a little bit over the last couple of weeks, um, right? About the progressive members of Congress, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and how they've taken a lot of sort of criticism by people on this, this in this sort of online left. Uh, for not really wielding the power that they have to, you know, 
uh, possibly possibly sink legislation if they need to to make things better, uh, or to not like fight for things that people uh, that people really care about. And I do sort of understand a little bit of that criticism, certainly. And now it seems like there is kind of a showdown forming, where you over these infrastructure bills, where you have Joe Manchin saying you know he he supports the sort of the bipartisan one and will not support the much more ambitious and much more you know uh, much more uh, bold infrastructure package that they're hoping to pass through reconciliation it's it's now it's it's set up this showdown where you have Manchin saying he's not going to vote for that and now you finally do have uh, AOC saying no we're not going to we're not going to pass this legislation if uh, if that's what it comes down to so I guess this is my question for you before before Adam joins us. What do you think is going to happen for out of this showdown? Do you think that they're going to stick to their guns? Do you think that they are really willing to sink this legislation if it comes down to it? You know, we know that that is going to be have a ton of political fallout if they and if they end up doing that. So what do you think? Do you think that they're going to stick to their guns? Are they going to cave? How do you see this this coming showdown over infrastructure playing out? Well, I just I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm confident enough to make a prediction because I think there's a few things moving. So in the house, you've got a couple blue dogs trying to obstruct and slow it down there. And you really only have a few votes to lose in the house. Um, and then you have mansion and cinema in the Senate who also are just total rats. Now mansion just said today on one of the Sunday morning shows that he's going to vote no on a $3.5 trillion package. You need both of those votes to do it on the three, 3.5 because it's a, it's a go it alone type thing. If that happens, I don't know what that looks, what that, what impact that has on 2022, because this is probably the only big piece of legislation Biden's going to be able to pass. Because after when they come back, maybe something in the fall, I have no idea what that's going to look like. Maybe something uh, in at the end of the year, try to squeeze something in. But at next year, it's going to be all campaigning. It's going to be it, – it, you're going to see very little done in Congress because it's going to be so politically charged because of midterms. So this is like really the only moment you can do something big and ambitious. And then that's what they're going to have to run on in 2022. So any sort of compromise – and, you know, you have progressives saying $3.5 trillion already is a compromise. Yeah, it's like you I have mentioned w- saying that like though that's the that's the ceiling and we've got room to negotiate. And then you mentioned have some people like Rashid Clyburn. saying like, no, it's the floor. Like that's Clyburn the floor. is saying 3.5 yes, is yes. the ceiling, which okay. like this guy's a, a the, the fucking kingmaker apparently. Um, and it's like remarkable that you have people – and for him, like he's third in command in the House Dems to undercut – their own their own party like that it just it shows just how deep and pervasive corporate influence is in the yeah. in the democratic party like um, biden campaigned on all this shit that's the amazing thing yep. to me it's like it's literally their agenda yep. that they campaigned on they've got their they own party being like whoa, whoa 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 hey let's let's not let's not go too far here yeah yeah so i i'm, I'm also like frustrated by people who for years have alleged that people like sanders aoc talib ilhan um and the rest of like the more progressive members uh, have are are working against Democratic Party priorities. So this is like you're saying. This is this is a Democratic Party priority. This is what Biden wants to do. This is what Pelosi wants to do. And this is what Schumer wants to do. And the progressives are in lockstep on this to pass it. And the people that aren't are the blue dogs, the moderates, the people who resemble a political makeup or a political ideology that the consultant class, 
the the analyst class and the pundit class insist is the best way forward for the Democratic Party. And they will champion these people over progressive alternatives to the Democratic Party's own detriment, as we're seeing play out now. So I hope if this somehow does not happen, God forbid, that people take a lesson from this and to never fucking trust any of this type of bullshit blue dog centrist uh, myth making ever again. Because when it comes down to it, look what's happened across the board. You've got progressives in lockstep on this. And you have even out, you have the DSA even whipping votes against the recall in California. Imagine going back two years and <laughs> saying, and, and telling yourself this. Like, yeah, it would be unbelievable. But, but that's what's happening because people understand how the system works. And people in the progressive left understand there's much more to be gained with a $3.5 trillion package than a bipartisan compromise that'll probably perpetuate some of the worst elements uh, of climate change yeah yeah and it's just it's it's amazing too this this like hand-wringing about about oh, how it's gonna it's way too expensive and stuff it's not like there's been any serious crises lately like that happening that could <laughs> possibly this would you know respond to some of this stuff i don't know it's it is amazing it's amazing the way that they they're totally willing to just torpedo their own agenda. And like, again, AOC pointed out in this video she did the other day, it's not like these things are even unpopular in these people's districts many of the time. Like, they're actually popular. It's not like, oh, I have to vote against this or else I'm going to be voted out. Like, it's it's quite the opposite. Uh, but that's how married they are to this this idea of like just enforcing this this kind of austerity budget, even even when all signs in the <laughs> indicate that like you need to respond to some with something else. Um, but anyway, it's just, I'm interested to see how it plays out. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how that how that happens and how it plays out in the media and how everyone responds to it. Let's get to our conversation with Adam, though, now. Adam Johnson is going to be joining the show in just a minute. Again, really great talk. Really appreciate the work that Adam does. He's going to be joining the show right after this. by Adam Johnson. Uh, Adam, of course, the co-host of the podcast Citations Needed, very excellent podcast. Also um, of The Column on Substack, new Substack guy. Adam, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Are you going to become one of these like Substack contrarians now? It's in your, is it in your contract that once you start getting involved in that, you have to start you need to start going on Tucker Carlson and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. The five seconds of having a Substack, or really, I think any media, you, you definitely realize why people make heel turns to the right. It's a fucking cash cow. I mean, and the sort of liberal, vaguely left person turn turn road to Damascus who sees the light and uh, starts punching, starts dunking on the libs is a, is definitely a a uh, a, op- a clear path towards subs for sure. Um, Seems like it. Yeah. Um, I haven't cracked it yet because I dunk on the libs all the time, and I'm still. Well, very so not successful. Dunking on the so. libs from the left, there's <laughs> dunking on the libs as a as an ideology in and of itself, which which very quickly becomes just right wing, right? right? Yeah, Jordan, do you want to do you want to hit Adam with the the big the big question to get us started off here? Oh my God, of course, Adam. So we start all of these conversations the same way. Uh, yes. We don't like to let people off the hook. Oh, um, well, I'm on the hot so seat. You, yeah, yeah. So it's the same. It's the same fastball question, um, right down the middle. Just know who they who who they are who we're dealing with. Adam, are you a gamer? I'm not a gamer. I I, I have mm. I think an Xbox. Um, gosh, I don't know what it's called. And I occasionally would play with a friend of mine in San Antonio. Um, we would play MLB the Show. Yeah, um, that kind of counts. 
So no, I'm I'm not a gamer. Why are y'all gamers? What's the what's the, is this a gamer show I'm on? I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, we do pro gamer activism here. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I hopefully I'm not alienating your base. No. <laughs> no, I think I think that still counts though. I, you know, yeah. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna allow it. You've held a controller account, so you're allowed to continue. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. No, I'm not. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I'm too busy, uh, you know, writing the great American novel and painting a self-portrait and building a house and doing sit-ups and reading. <laughs> of course, and, and, and activism, of course. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and helping old ladies cross the street. I don't have time for that frivolity. I understand. Yeah. yeah. I understand. I'm a degenerate. I just play Fortnite and Magic the <laughs> Gathering, so. <laughs> um, I hope you two had a good uh, 9-11. How was your was 9-11? The, I'm not bad. the best, Rob. Yeah. It was, it was okay. You know, it's sad. I was, I was, I was reading about... I watched one of those schmaltzy like Fox uh, things today on the New York New York Fire Department football team, which lost I think twenty two out of fifty something people that day. Because you know they lost three hundred forty three firemen that day. It was a lot of firemen, entire uh, I don't guess not departments is the term used, but were like wiped out. And I was reading about the firemen who died. Very sad. I don't have, I'm not ironic about that. I love it. I do think I do think one of the things I think a lot about, which maybe we can talk about. I don't know. Should I just pontificate here? Yeah, please. Okay. So, like, one of the things I was thinking a lot of, a lot about this last few weekends is, like, how do you draw the line? There's this very blurry line between legitimate grief, grief and remembrance and jingoistic propaganda. And every single one of these sort of, like, sh- stories you read, um, especially on television, there's – it sort of starts off and you're like, wow, that's a lot of people who died or this is very sad or this person lost this loved one and it's very precious and it's very, you know, it's very, very vulnerable, very, very real. I mean, even though it's been 20 years, it's still, you know, 3,000 people died in, in a couple hours. It's like a big, you know, mass death event. And then it sort of starts to merge into kind of flag-waving saying, you know, we, 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 we – then we all united, which of course has a sort of political uh, loaded – concept that is obviously very contestable <laughs> um, to those who were affected by the sort of what that uniting entailed with respect to invading Afghanistan or or uh, hate crimes against Muslims or the kind of jingoistic fervor, the snuffing out of the, um, the globalization, the anti-globalization movement, other left-wing movements. So like it's such a fine line because you'll sort of watch these segments or you'll sort of read these articles about people who suffered and you, and you, and you sort of your heart goes out because it's it's very real and then suddenly there's this sort of Lock, there's a sort of tacked on uh, political commentary and it's so hard to even like know where that that line is and it's so hard to divorce grief from the um, from because it's a, that that grief is such an important antecedent to the political um, uh, projects of of the US Empire since 9/11 right that it's like it's so hard to divorce the two and I'm sort of I'm even sort of curious because I think in some senses the left is kind of done two things to kind of cope with that. They've either been very ironic about 9-11, you know, people make a lot of jokes or this or, you know, Bush did 9-11 kind of stuff. Or they um, do the kind of, well, what about all those, you know, 148,000 people who died in Afghanistan? Which is like, fine and all, but I don't think really speaks to like the kind of basic need to focus or to sort of, at least once a year, you know, I don't think we need to like focus on it all the time, but like at least once every five years, one day, every five years, seems reasonable to sort of grief that in and of itself. But like, how do you even do that without fueling these forces? I don't, I don't know. I'm, 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 this is a think piece. I don't actually have a good take here. I just, I, I find that, right. I find that like hard to navigate. So you don't think like CNN journalists were the real heroes of the day that we should all be thankful for? Like Brian uh, Stetler was saying this, I think on CNN. Oh, uh, wait, what was, what, what he loves to talk about how brave 
journalists are, and well, sanctioned journalists. Yeah. If they're if they're if they're um, AP journalists in Gaza, they have it coming. If they're J twenty journalists who are who are facing seventy years in federal prison, they have it coming. But if they're their buddies at CNN or other corporate media uh, outlets who are not being bombed by Israel, then. But what, what did he say with respect to the? Oh, let me just quickly check. You know, he's ostensibly like a media reporter, but has absolutely zero like substantive things to add, which is like a really hard job to do. Like if I had to do media criticism, but never had anything of substance to add, um, but had to like fill up space an hour a day, five days a week, uh, I would have a hard time doing that. Yeah. But, no, like, he, so he, 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 he. So what he does is he reverts to this kind of very vague, like, aren't journalists the real hero stuff all the time? Yeah. No, he retweeted a, a post or a story from AP News. And he said, network TV anchors were, quote, the closest thing that America oh. had to national leaders on 9-11. They were the moral authority for the country on that first day. Yeah, sure, Especially with the political leaders in bunkers or otherwise out of sight. Yeah, why not? There are people digging, you know, people, you know, rushing to ground zero to pull people out of the rubble. But I really, it was Tom <laughs> Yeah. No, that's the thing. I was really, like, I was, you're right to, to point out that, like, that should be something that we should really celebrate the, the heroism that took place. I was, I was really, I found, I saw the picture of... I think ladder 118 there's this famous picture yeah uh crossing the brooklyn bridge and just every single person on the truck was killed that day um yeah no it's not because they just ran into the building they ran yeah. you know uh, that's you know where the, i think something like third maybe 20 30 something police officers not uh, 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 i don't want to take this time to acap but like basically like th- that's not really their job to sort of run into places where that's literally firemen's job yeah or fire fire people rather and they did and it fucking collapsed and they wiped out you know again Whole, 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 uh, whole ladders, whole, whole departments, or whatever those sort of appropriate term is. No, but you're right, though. It's it it is tricky to find the balance between like taking that seriously and not participating in this in what in this kind of like kind of grotesque spectacle that it's turned into. Yeah, um, it's it's it, you know, especially when you have Bush going out there, and and, yeah. and, and it, again, it's like you, it's almost impossible to de to sort of strip it of its of its imperial context because it it's sort of you know America, especially at the 2001 sort of this lone superpower it's it's kind of the same problem to, to put it crudely it's the same problem that like the screenwriters of 24 had which is how do you make an empire look like an underdog um yeah. you know with this vast unparalleled so you sort of you have this kind of specter of terrorism where there the the kind of randomness of the attack and the and the brutality of it makes gives you a sort of moral sense of an underdogism and you saw this when we invaded afghanistan there was you know america likes to view itself as an underdog almost to the person and when you have when you have when you have such overwhelming force it's like how do you frame yourself that way uh, especially when so many people kind of wanted it to be this you know greatest generation world war ii you know we we're all coming off the high of saving private ryan and, and band of brothers which which premiered two days before 9 11 there was the sense of like we're then we're now gonna have a new greatest generation but to sort of get there and it's a bunch of like extremely poor people and they're kind of hiding in caves and it's not really clear who finances them and Saudi Arabia may or may not be involved. And the whole thing sort of seems – doesn't really seem as clear as people wanted it to be. One, one thing that I do – I have noticed as well though um, – and this is something that's been I think pervasive, especially like in the, in the, in the years preceding immediately afterwards. Um, this kind of real effort – on the part of a lot of sort of serious liberal journalists, such as Chris Hayes, who tweeted about this recently, to really shut down any anyone actually like questioning the official narrative that's been presented about what actually happened. I don't want to get like too into the weeds on that. I'm not going to canceled. Sure. Um, but it, it was kind of interesting, isn't it? And, and it seems like there's this kind of taboo about questioning these things um, and and pushing back against this official narrative about September 11th that's been that's been created, that's been upheld by things like the the 9-11 commission 
it seems like that taboo is kind of broken a little bit and now you have it's starting to become a lot more normalized to have people start to be like hey like maybe we should be asking some of these very critical questions uh considering the way this event has been used to justify like 20 straight years of so much destruction and and violent imperialism and military spending and cracked on the civil liberties and all this stuff like it's it is interesting and it's like what do you, what do you make of that this whole um this very this effort on the part of of uh, a lot of serious journalists to really ostracize anyone that that was sort of asking these kind of critical questions about this well i mean like with anything involving these emotionally charged like historical events it's 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 hard to know the balance because on the one hand you know certain quote unquote conspiracy theories can fuel anti-semitism like that's very much a thing it can fuel um sort of di- misplaced paranoia or, or, or distrust in institutions that maybe is not justified. Um, you know, at the same time, um, especially with respect to Saudi involvement, like in the redactions of, of, or the, or the, or the pre- preventing of lawsuits and the identification of the, of the, of the Saudi government and the nine and the nine eleven victims families, you know, I mean, you had at one point in 2016, 2017, all five major editorial boards in the United States, uh, the Washington post, you know, New York times, USA today, uh, all came out, and, and, and as well as the Obama administration, opposing suing the government, uh, suing Saudi Arabia over 9/11. Um, even though countries like Iran, by the way, have been sued for 9/11 because of they they sort of generically supported terrorism, even though of course nobody nobody credibly makes the claim that they themselves did 9/11. Um, so you have this sort of ally of the U.S. who's kind of tangentially or, or directly involved. Uh, a lot of unknown questions there. I think that's kind of a major vector for a lot of people who maybe aren't taken into these things normally to be like, well, that is kind of um, strange, and it makes sense because we know that this, you know, obviously most of the hijackers were Saudi. We know that Bin Laden Saudi. We know that there's supposedly, a, you know, there's a break between them, but also there's a lot of financial links. Um, but I mean, you know, it's natural for people to ask questions. I don't really have a s- strong opinion about it. I, I think, I think sometimes going down certain rabbit holes can have problems. Um, with re- again, with respect to like. You have to sort of you have to. We should have a, an accurate and sober reading of how the of the world itself. But certainly, the ideological gatekeeping around conspiracy theories is something of, of interest to me. I mean, you see that a lot, even with things that are kind of banal. Yeah, it does seem kind of like sometimes that people get put into certain camps as well. And and like you know that's part of that's a whole conspiracy in and of itself is whether you think that certain people like in this kind of wacko conspiracy world are possibly you know. Playing right. a certain role specifically to delegitimize uh, like real questions that people might have. Conspiracy theory is a pejorative label that is basically a career ender, and nobody ever wants to be called a conspiracy theorist. I think it's inter- it's really interesting to think about the way that mainstream media, uh, you know, all over the world, obviously in America predominantly, but all over the world, shifted into this like very hyper militaristic um, mode. Uh, right after, right after 9, September 11th, of course, and really went into complete overdrive in in you know creating creating this narrative and and manufacturing this consent for what we've now been through for this what America's been through over this 20 year period of of uh, all kinds of like really brutal sadistic violence in many cases. And um, one thing that was kind of interesting to me is I really started to get that kind of feeling about the media over the last couple of weeks of this Afghanistan withdrawal, as that's been kind of coming to a close. Um, and I feel like they, they kind of switched that, they, they flipped that switch back on um, in the last couple of weeks. And you actually, you did a great job of covering a, a lot of this stuff, the way that the this like, 
these these supposedly objective journalists who often lecture people about you know being objective and not doing advocacy journalism just completely dropped all pretense of being of having any kind of objectivity over the last couple of weeks as they felt this war coming to an end and really felt like they were kind of throwing their bodies on the tracks to prevent this. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's one of the sort of clever things about quote-unquote objective journalist ideology that's shoved down people's throats in, in J school, although there are obviously there's exceptions to that, is that, like, there are certain things that exist outside of quote-unquote politics, and um, for, to a large extent, empire, or the sort of general premises of empire, the U.S., the, the, the civic religion of the U.S. as a moral arbiter of human rights, the U.S. as a kind of beacon of freedom, that historically these things, and this goes back decades, that these things are kind of beyond politics, that they're sort of consensus, like you would have a consensus around um, climate change or gravity, right, or, or, or the theory of evolution, right? It's kind of an accepted um, reality that the U.S. that U.S. that the basic premise of U.S. empire that we're the sort of morally preferable global police is not really contestable. It's not an idea. It's not even really considered ideological. It's it, again, it's like the, the universal constant or gravity. It's just this thing, right? That's that's exists and has always existed, and it's just the way it is. And um, with Afghanistan, it was a, it was an ex, it was an extremely unusual circumstance where. The president, for various reasons, um, I think probably the most urgent being is that it, it was a, it's very popular, so in, you know, north of seventy five percent popularity, um, decided to say, "Well, I'm not going to be extorted," because I think this was a shock, you know, to a lot of people that even on the left that he actually sort of withdrew the troops. Now, obviously, they're keeping thrones and and, and those horrible things, so the, by no means the war over. But the the military pullout was a meaningful de escalation. And we know it was meaningful because the blob had a fucking month-long meltdown over it. And um, that civic religion of, 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 of American empire was was uh, this is a sort of rare occasion where the president kind of bucked to the that national security establishment, which, by the way, I'm told does not exist by several people, except the fact that they all 99 percent of them all the exact opinion. There is no mafia. Yeah, ex- exactly. There is no mafia. <laughs> an illustrative, you know, from an immediate criticism standpoint, it was it was it was a, a bunny slope, right? It was it was the, the chip shot, whatever you sort of choose your metaphor, because they were they were uniformly all having basically the same meltdown, and there are there are systemic and ideological reasons why that is we can get into, but it was an object lesson in sort of how these things, um, how how the media quote-unquote media, sort of generalized media, can discipline politicians and presidents who are seen as being um, off script from what is considered the kind of axiom of American imperial kind of um, uh, right, that it's kind of our right to do these things. We, we, we saw this this kind of, this real kind of breathless moralizing, editorializing from people like Peter Baker, Jake Tapper, uh, Richard Engel, who I, I honestly thought was going to have a some kind of breakdown. I mean, he was just losing it. <laughs> um, the only closest example I could think of was um, was all the debt scolding of Obama. And like that was Obama mostly got you know got a free ride to a great extent as well because he was very kind of center center right right. But then the, he they got a little bit loosey goosey. Even though the rhetoric didn't reckon, didn't reflect this, they got loosey goosey with the, the holiest of the holies, right? The only thing holier than the troops is the deficit, right? Yeah, um, I remember that if this was your family budget, this was what yeah, it would look like. This, that, those kind of things. Yeah, like, meltdown. I mean, all the usual. That's how Big Tapper made his career. He was at ABC. He would sit there and scold Jay Carney about the deficit. And that's sort of a similar example because that was um, that's less holy these days, just by the necessity because 
you know, they had to, they had to say fuck that after the recession in March of 2020. There's no way you could get around that. But um, it's sort of similar. Like, it's, it's disciplining liberal presidents, uh, which is what you have to do. You have to make sure that they don't go, they don't veer off the script. Um, I think on the Biden point, um, a lot of people probably shudder to do this on the left set of you know, purity politics or whatever, but admit that this was the right thing for Biden to do, to pull out of Afghanistan, uh, to, I wouldn't say admit defeat, uh, but um, at least recognize that the operation that they were still conducting was a failed one. And that made uh, national security analysts kind of shudder and recoil. Uh, have, we have an overreaction now from the center and especially center right and beyond you see lindsey graham already clamoring to reinvade um and as much as i don't really personally care for for the guy i think this was something that just was politically popular enough for biden to do it and he recognized that they needed to do this in the long run um what i don't see however is a recognition in the media that this is part of a larger uh, foreign policy shift toward yes. toward China yes. and, and Russia, yes. and I, they everyone wants to say this. Oh, the forever war is over. No. We've ended the forever war. And we see this play out in the progressive left. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak to that. How this is, while he's getting applause and this is good, it's giving him cover to realign and re and reposition uh, toward Which China. Is what he says very explicitly, right? I mean, <laughs> in right. his speech, he said that, and this yep. is something I've been careful to qualify along with the fact that. The drone war will continue. That 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 the, the, there may not be a meaningful aside from the fact that they've effectively handed over the country to the Taliban, which may kind of, which I think will probably reduce the total drone strikes. That for the average rural, you know, rural random person in, in Afghanistan, there may not be a meaningful difference because they're still going to have to worry about death from above, which is a very real fear and it very creates generational PTSD and all this other horrible stuff. Um, but yeah, no, the, the sort of pivot to China is how Jake Sullivan framed it. And I think the national security consensus world, one of their taking it too, they're like, well, we can do both. I mean, we just this, just this past week, you know, we blacked on, we tacked on another $30 billion to the, to the NDA that Biden didn't even ask for. Uh, that's, that's three times adjusted for inflation. That's, that's, um, that's roughly the, uh, that's, that's about, $10 billion more than the entire Israeli military budget just randomly thrown in without any public debate or discussion. I mean, maybe a handful of articles, right? And so Biden really thought that there was that, that they had to sort of look at this as a focus issue. And make no mistake about it, the, 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 one of the primary arguments people make, especially um, when they're not doing the sanctimonious fake moralizing about human rights, is that the, you need to remain in Afghanistan because of its proximity to China. Well, you're going to take away troops from the the border of, uh, um, of Tajikistan and Iran. Of Tajikistan. Right. Every, oh, my goodness. How can you do yeah, this? It's, it's a disaster. A, you know, a thousand CNN reporters <laughs> scrambled to go find an atlas to see where, where what, what, what <laughs> evil country was bordering Afghanistan. We had to menace. Um, but they um, – but, you know, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor and, and others, they explicitly argue that this is about sort of pivot to China. I mean, anyone who can look at a at – a, at a, at a, you know, hockey stick graph of, of development, growth, power, can see that that's the threat to U.S., you know, sort of unilateral hegemony, which is sort of a no-no. It's not acceptable. We're the, we're, you know, we're the city on the hill. It's our, it's our world. Uh, we're supposed to sort of go wherever we want, whenever we want to. And China is, obviously, there's a lot of people. is a very large, um, very robust 
you know, economy. It's very intertwined to some extent with our economy in certain sectors. And it has a leadership that is not going to sort of, you know, do whatever the U.S. wants them to do. You know, it's, it's a combination of creating space for capitalism, but also has an old guard of, and even to some extent, a new guard of doctrinaire Marxist-Leninist leadership um, that has always been a weird hybrid. You know, we don't have to go into the, the sort of details of it, but it's, they're not, they're, they're not going to be, go the way of the Soviet Union, basically, right? That's been clear for many years now. They're not going to just do the shock doctrine, bring in the, <clears throat> the, the sort of NGOs and, 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 and make, try to make it some kind of vassal state uh, of U.S. capital, um, and they're not fucking around and, and they know that. And so there's this whole panic around that, and, you know, Chinese influence and John Cena did a TikTok. So let's melt down about that for fucking three, <laughs> three, three months. Um, and it's popular. It's bipartisan. I mean, the right, it's all they talk about. It's all the JD Vance talks about. It's all Josh Hawley talks about. It's the commies. It's all, it's just warmed over John Bircherism, but this time with a kind of more racist flair, um, not to say that Birchers weren't racist, but I mean, with respect to the Soviet Union, it's kind of has a has an added element. And so, um, no, they've been, you know they've made that clear from day one that that's that that was the the, the kind of that was their pitch to the blob. Um, again, a term I'm not totally comfortable with because the person who coined it, Ben Rhodes, is probably the, one of the worst actors of the blob. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting sleight of hand. Yeah, there. sort of. I'm not one of these people. Was under yeah. Obama, because again, anyone can you can look at a chart. I mean, you can look at where the where the big arrows are going up <laughs> this isn't yeah this isn't uh, the line is going in the wrong direction yeah. in this case and, no. <laughs> um, you know there's a lot of imperial neurosis about that there's and how we're, you know in, in china's all be, you know serving as an alternative to imf which is a huge i you know the you know i'm uh, the imf um you know, uh, structural adjustment programs and loans are a huge part of how the U.S. wields wields power in the global south and, and extracts resources yeah. and privatizes certain markets and fights commies. Which is hilarious. It's hilarious too because then you see people, you see people talking about like the Belt and Road Initiative and, and talking about it like they call it a debt trap. And it's like that's literally yeah, that's, our well, thing. That, that's, that's what we've that, been I mean, doing. You know, without without <laughs> you, pick, you know, it's it's not like the Chinese debt uh mechanisms are necessarily benevolent or even that good but they're i mean what what appears to be the case is that for the most part they're preferable and that's why the imf is now over the last 10 years or so has tried to get less exploitative i mean i mean look back in the 90s when there was no competition at all i mean it was a fucking protection racket i mean if, if you look at the data you know i spent some time in lebanon if you look at the data um at least from 2018 i think the the 25 percent of Lebanon's federal spending goes to paying off IMF loans. Something like 10% yeah. just goes off to paying interest alone. I mean, it's, it's, this is, this is what the, this was your only option. If you, if you wanted, if you, if, if you, yeah. if you needed to quote unquote develop and you had no other choice. I and, and I always like to use the Nelson Mandela analogy too, for this. That was how, that was how they prevented Mandela from carrying out a lot of the more radical yeah. reforms that he wanted to do when Mandela took over. Oh yeah. Uh, in South Africa, the land reform and all that stuff, like he was completely hamstrung by the IMF debt that he had to pay to the like, that the previous government, the apartheid government, had racked up. Yeah, no, it's an, it's a protection racket. I mean, that's that, that's always yeah. been the criticism of it, and they don't want competition. I mean, that's what it's about. All, everything else is window dressing. They don't they don't want competition, and so uh, you know that's where the focus is. Uh, that's where the focus is, and of course, the problem with that, you know, there are many problems with that. You know, if you, if you look through the NDAA. Over the last two years, the rationalism. I mean, Russia sort of doesn't seem is not doesn't quite have the 
the umph. So that boogeyman doesn't really work. The war on terror is kind of played out. So every single rationalization of new ice cutters, aircraft carriers, um, whatever sort of billion dollar expenditure or, or trillion dollar war budget um, is justified by China. I mean, it has, you know, that's the new thing. So it makes sense that after that, that, because I, I think there were some people in the, in the, in the, Pentagon, who sort of wanted to move away from Afghanistan uh, for that reason, because you know, because Afghanistan was a huge, huge, huge gravy train. I mean, it was a huge gravy train. There, there was sure. an article. I think, uh, gosh, where was it? Forgive me for not knowing, but it was basically about how like Afghanistan basically de- developed and gentrified uh, Virginia, the suburbs of DC. I mean, they like traced all the money from Afghanistan, you know, seventy, eighty billion dollars a year. Uh, the vast majority, you know, three quarters of it goes back to Virginia, goes back to California, goes to Connecticut, goes to goes to New York, and um, they're that getting rid, you know, undermining that gravy train is is not good. But there will be other gravy trains, you know, with the quote unquote pivot to Asia. Yeah, uh, and just to close off talking about Afghanistan too, one thing, one final thing that I found kind of interesting as well is that, you know, as much as as the media was really in overdrive trying to manufacture this narrative about how human rights are being abandoned and the, you know, the, the, and all this stuff, like all this crap. And then they, they close out this occupation with a with a drone strike in retaliation for the, mm-hmm. the suicide bombing that took place at Kabul airport to, you know, this retaliatory drone, st- drone strike. Biden said, we're going to find you and we're going to take you out. And the, the tough talk that we're used to hearing. And then it's like, Oh, by the way, that wasn't actually an ISIS no. uh, camp that we took out. That was an aid worker and a bunch of kids and families. And like, it's really like, it, it becomes difficult then for the media to continue building this narrative. It, it this, this, like this one grotesque incident really was the became kind of a symbol of what the whole occupation was about and punctured this idea this like this this myth that they had been creating that that America in Afghanistan or anyone else is standing up for people's human rights and defending people i mean it was it was one, one final piece of evidence that that shows that none of that was ever really true yeah i mean that's the that's the, the one of the reasons there was a meltdown is that um there 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 was the, the way it works in I talked about this a little bit on on, on the, the Dig the Jacqueline podcast, but basically the way it works is you sort of you, you do your your um um and uh, Gopal's piece in, in the New Yorker that went viral. If you viral makes it sound frivolous, it was a wonderful piece of journalism. And, uh, forgive me for using that word in that context. Is that he shows that there's this rural urban divide um, that for most of the victims of the war are kind of faceless poor people. And the rule, you know, eighty percent of the country is rural, right? Um, it's not in Kabul, and the journalists pretty much only see Kabul, and they get the NGO tour, and they get the women's rights, and they sort of begin to believe it. And to some extent, it's true; it is preferable, if, you know, <laughs> uh, on by any objective metric, to live not under the Taliban if you're a woman uh, in, in, in Kabul, of course. But the problem is, it's a, it's a it's a it's a ledger, and the other part of the ledger is the massive amounts of death vast majority of which it appears is not even really even documented of people being killed by airstrikes, drone strikes, um, and being extorted by these warlords and, and militias and death squads in the U.S. backs. And that was completely erased from the equation because for the most part, journalists, they don't really get that story. They don't, they're not interested in that story. Uh, they're interested in, uh, in the story that the U.S. is, is, is Emily's list with, with predator drones. Um, because that's a yeah. that's a f- flattering story. It's a jingoistic story. It's also the story they're exposed to when they when they do their six months in Afghanistan to kind of earn their street cred and 
And that's what's fed to them by, you know, think tanks that are all funded by weapons contractors, et cetera, et cetera. So nobody really wanted to kind of address the messy part of the, the moral calculus, which is how bloody and how horrible this war has been for Afghan civilians. I mean, just documented alone, almost 10,000 deaths last year. Um, and, hundred, you know, tens of thousands of deaths just go sort of glossed over with this image of, of you know, women's education and such. And, and again, it's not as if those things aren't important, but they're, they're just the only thing we talk about. We don't talk about the, the, the level of death that we, that we deal out and, and the forces that we back in Afghanistan who do deal out death and extort people and, and grift money and steal money from people. Um, we, we only get the other side of the equation, which is why most people were so shocked to read the piece in the New Yorker because they were saying, wait a second, what is this? And it's like, well, yeah, you literally never get that story. <laughs> um, yeah. and it's, it's, you know, there are reasons why that is in terms of access and, and how much exposure, but there's just this, you had this narrative that the that NATO was doing this women's liberation uh, action because in some sort of micro context it was true sort of, but the real the the, the reality of the situation was you know if if I'm a seven year old girl killed in a drone strike being able to be educated doesn't mean much to me, and if you look at polls of of Afghans which the Asia Society which is kind of a NED carve out anyway it's sort of a US pro US based carve out but poll after poll after poll showed that people just wanted the war to end. They didn't actually really necessarily care if you, again, it depends how you ask the question, who won. They just wanted it to end because they were tired of, 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 the, of, of the death and the, and, the, and the fighting, which makes sense, right? I mean, it's 20 years is a long time. Entire generation if, of people grew up and this is yeah, all they, they knew. Can. And um, unfortunately, the U.S. was never going to win. The U.S. was never going to like militarily defeat the Taliban because it was never going to happen. If if people cared about the well-being of Afghans, they would have spoken up uh, or demonstrated a collective outrage years ago. Um, as you know, as the bodies piled up and as people were killed, um, it was just a collective silence. And within that, and especially the media coverage of that and the terminology set out by or set forth by the government, the Bush administration, especially, uh, you know, rolling out collect, uh, collateral damage to kind of dismiss innocent civilians killed by the military. Um, the jingoism present throughout our media reduces these people to, you know, subhuman levels where their lives just don't matter. Their deaths don't matter. Um, and when we saw these kind of self-aggrandizing or self-pitying uh, lists of all the sacrifices that the United States made in Afghanistan, you never saw within that uh, reflected a total uh, uh, body count of, of Afghans, whether they were, they were actually, um, you know, militants or civilians caught in crossfire or wayward drone strikes or anything it was just always a bunch of uh, you know a couple thousand uh, u.s service members died a couple a couple dozen reporters died um we spent all this money we spent all this time there and then they never really mentioned the the human loss there and for people to care act like this is about women's empowerment or some sort of gender or sexual equity and that was their mission um is ludicrous and i, I well i mean you know can't say i'm surprised you have to have a moral framework for empire every empire's had it the british had a civilizing civilizing mm -hmm. mission they had their own internal propaganda they had the propaganda they gave um again another example i talk about is like the women's empowerment and getting rid of child marriage was a was a primary was a primary argument to justify british imperialism in india to, to sort of fend off the the, the, the mohammedans yeah. and this is sort of one-on-one -on -one stuff right because you Pe tens of thousands of people have to wake up every day in the Pentagon 
millions of people in the Pentagon, but tens of thousands of people in the State Department, these sort of auxiliary NGOs that form that, that form around this, they have to wake up and believe that what they're doing is right. You know, people don't wake up in the morning, some low-level functionary at the State Department when they're not getting Havana syndrome, they don't wake up at like, you know, 8 a.m. going, man, I, I really <laughs> like to do empire, right? Twiddle their mustache. <laughs> they need a moral pretext. This has been true of every war, you know, Vietnam liberating people from communism, whatever it is, Korea, we're going to kill 20% of the population, but hey, they're not communists. Better dead than red. Um, so Afghanistan retconned this kind of feminist posture that, that again, I think in certain quarters, there are people kind of lower down the food chain in the NGO world who really kind of wanted to do good and thought they were doing good. The problem is, is that it exists, it exists within a very cruel and, and, and uh, it, it turns out disingenuous imperial context. Um, and you saw this from a lot of frustrated NGO types and activists and, and, and feminists within Afghanistan when the U.S. was pulling out. They were outraged. They were being sold out. They were being... You know, no, there was very little communication with respect to getting them out and doing this. And it's like, well, yeah, because they don't really care. <laughs> I mean, that's not, I'm not trying to be glib about it and, or, 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 or kind of being, um, it's not about the, the lack of sincerity matters because it, it, it reflects and follow through and it reflects in what the real point of the mission is. And really what it was is it was comparable to like an Exxon giving 5% of their profits to, you know, alternative energy research. It's PR. And the fundamental existential yeah. nature of Exxon is sinister, just as the fundamental existential nature of U.S. empire is not for liberal progress. It's, it's you know, we know that because if that was their concern, tomorrow they would stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, but they don't. You know, they paused it for five minutes, but ended up doing it anyway. So, like, that's that's how we know they're not really sincere. <laughs> and that's and that and, and in ethics, intent matters, as they teach you in 101, you know, and, and, and um, I think that that um that moral framework is not is 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 necessary it has to, it sort of it it has to emerge and one of the things with that with Iraq is they didn't they didn't they couldn't quite get one at first it was freedom then it was then they kind of tried the women's liberation thing but that didn't really work and then it was um you know building a society there wasn't they couldn't really sink their teeth into a into a moral narrative of why we were doing, why we were going over there and bombing these people, you know, five, 7,000 miles away. Especially when all evidence that they were actually tied to any attacks on America had completely yeah, failed to materialize. Narrative. There wasn't really <laughs> even a national security narrative, which again was originally the main narrative, the main narrative. And then it was, oh, we're yeah. actually going to free them from this dictator. Well, okay, that's that seems kind of convenient. <laughs> By the way, don't look into how this dictator got there well, in the first yeah, place. No, no, definitely, definitely don't, don't look into that. any of that that's stuff. That's the old black and white days. We don't talk about that. That's basically a million years ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Adam, while we still have you, I know you I know you have to go in a few minutes. I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on another kind of media narrative that's been going on in, in mainstream media um, in America as, as well over the last couple of months, which is – <clears throat> this idea of the um, the work shortage and that no one wants to work anymore, the labor shortage narrative, um, which I know you've been covering a lot as well, which just seems very like it seems very important to point out getting to this moment in America when now these these unemployment benefits are ending. You have evictions resuming. Um, it's just a, it's turning into this complete nightmare scenario uh, for people that are being left behind by the economic system. And like that is not really being talked about that much in the media. And what is being talked about is like the poor, you know, the poor small business owners that are not able to get anyone working at their jobs. And it's, it's been really relentless over the last like six, eight months. Um, yeah. Right. And you've done, you've covered this stuff. a yeah. lot. It's very clear that the strategy 
from both parties' leadership is to just move on. Um, and that temporary aid pandemic is over because the vaccines didn't quite have the punch we thought they would with respect to stopping trans transmissions. And we can't, the, the ruling, the, the capital class can't really permit us to be, to allow people to freeload much longer because there's upward pressure on wages and wages are too high. And the fundamental thing you have to understand is that our economy is so very much driven by precarity. Fear of being destitute, fear of losing your apartment, fear of losing your health care is, you, is how the ruling class disciplines workers in this country. And when you have too much supplemental health insurance and stimulus checks, you've radically undermined that social contract and you tilt from, from 99% of the power to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to capital to like 80% and that's not acceptable. So you have people who are making $900 a week sitting home and you can't have that. Because then they could flourish and read and be happy and spend time with their children and maybe pursue other interests or maybe go back to school. And that's not okay. And it was very, it was very, very important to the Chamber of Commerce and the National Restaurant Association. These other business interest groups made it very clear to the Biden administration. They made it very clear to members of Congress. And this is uniform across capital. I mean, not even, you know, not without exception, especially those who rely on cheap, precarious labor, that this had to end. And it didn't matter if there if we we had an uptick in cases. It didn't matter the Delta variant totally changed the dynamic from May of two thousand one when they started auctioning off this labor shortage bullshit. Um, that they were they, because the labor shortage crisis was first and foremost an informal capital strike. It was people saying it was it was it was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and other organizations saying we cannot we have to demagogue and go to the media and cry and cry and cry about about having to pay people too much. Because it's not a labor shortage. A labor shortage implies a lack of workers. There was not a lack of workers. There was a lack of pay. It was a pay shortage uh, because creating unemployment does create higher wages. That's what happens because you have a, you're basically competing with federal subsidies, right? And they said, okay, we're going to kind of eat shit a little bit, close early. Maybe don't have as much employment as we need, but we're going to we're going to basically wait this thing out because it's going to expire in September, which it did. Because if they had had to keep had to increase wages to keep up with the upward pressure on wages, they would have set a precedent, and they would have had to have paid those wages for the next few years, if not decades, and that was not okay. So instead, what they did is the business the the, the, the capital lobbies, like again the local and national chambers of commerce and the national retail and association, national restaurant association, all these groups basically fed these stories to the media to, to find mom and pa small business owner, the you know the sort of guy who owns the owns the um, uh, you know, uh, small diner in Appleton, Wisconsin. You just can't find yeah. waiters, and his heart bleeds. And and who's gonna who's gonna pose this guy? And they had uh, you've got retirees uh, going in just working, yeah, 10, just 000, uh, volunteering 10, there. Of yeah. stories, and eventually that, that <laughs> provides the sort of cover. You know, Republicans started gutting unemployment. Of course, it's on the state level many months ago. Democratic governors quietly followed suit, and then eventually the Biden the Biden administration did, despite the fact that the federal unemployment insurance subsidies. We're the most popular program the Democrats have done in years, and was the it was the it was the most meaningful transfer of wealth from to the poor in probably fifty sixty years um, since you know since Medicaid and and that um, or Medicare rather and uh, that was that was telling about what the Biden administration and Democrats Democratic leadership strategy was, which was to basically do. Albeit with the caveat of vaccines, which is a huge caveat, but basically do what Trump wanted to do and what what you know Greg Abbott wanted to do, which is so that we're just going to kind of act like this does this thing doesn't exist. 
uh, because the economy simply cannot have another two, three years of people living on the government. Okay. That was not okay. That, 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 because that, that undermines the whole social contract. It has to be, they go, oh, it's temporary pandemic insurance. Well, wait a second. The pandemic's still raging, right? I mean, I know, you know, vaccines help, but their the cases are up, hospitalizations are up. We have the winter coming. Doesn't matter. We're just going to move on. That's it. Sorry. Fuck you. That's it. You had, you know, we did, we, we yeah. did the year and a half. That's all capital was willing to sustain and to, and to you know, the, there was all this talk about inflation and this and that. And, and, um, so the, the pandemic, did not stop, but the pandemic aid stopped. Seven and a half million people, some say 9.3 million, depending on how you, how you, how you know, are thrown off their major financial lifeline overnight. Uh, three and a half million people, according to Goldman Sachs, are facing a potential eviction over the next few months because they have this back pay they have to pay. You have state subsidies, but it's not being distributed. Um, you know, there's supposedly $45 billion in federal subsidies for paying back rent, but it's you know, less than, I think, less than 2% has gone out. Certain states, it's even less. Um, you have a you have a perfect storm, and basically nobody cares because what they're going to do is they're just now wages are going to go back down, and they're going to say tell everyone, well, you can't pay rent, go fucking drive an Uber. You know yeah. that that's pretty much your option in that little brief window where you had a little bit of respite, and we have the numbers. The numbers are absolutely dispositive. We know that it reduced poverty and it reduced childhood hunger significantly, significantly. Um, we actually saw a reduction in poverty and hunger in 2020 because of those UI subsidies. And to be clear, those UI subsidies don't cover millions of people. They don't cover informal workers, undocumented immigrants, uh, 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 informal economy, sex workers, etc. So they're not perfect, but they did reduce poverty. And um, that was definitely not okay. <laughs> so, you know, we have, we, have a, we have a documented, known anti-poverty program that reduces hunger, reduces childhood hunger. Um, was more popular than Jesus and Tom Hanks, and it didn't matter because it, it, it we, we had to go back to this social arrangement where people are constantly paranoid that they're going to lose their job and be destitute and be kicked out, and, and uh, that was not okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we saw a lot of, like, grandstanding from, like, liberals and from the Biden administration saying, we, we reduced poverty, reduced childhood younger and all the stuff you're saying, but leaving out the fact that these are all temporary mm-hmm. things that are not going to yeah. – that are not permanent things and all the poverty and, and child hunger is indeed going to be that's coming the beauty back. Of, about being a leftist or socialist or whatever is you say, like, well, if it's reducing poverty, let's just do more of that. <laughs> this isn't – this isn't, you don't have to do all these exotic yeah, fucking tweaks to the economy to get <laughs> calibrate the needs of capital with this and upward, you know, tax incentive. No, just give people fucking money. It's not that hard. Um, yeah. But of course, that's not okay because that that's not what the country's. That's not the foundation of this country. Yeah. Well, um, I know you got to go, Adam. Thanks so much for coming to break this stuff down. Um, and yeah, it's like I think it's your the work that you do on citations needed and elsewhere is really really valuable for like understanding the way these media narratives work and like what the purpose is and what the goals are. So really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, before you want to before we sign off, just want to let everyone know where they can find the podcast and the the newsletter and everything you want to plug. Yeah, so I, citations needed is a podcast. Citations with an S. You can find it on um, finer podcast providers everywhere. Um, we're on, starting our fifth season on September fifteenth. It's every Wednesday, so we're excited about that. Episode 144, I think. I don't know. I'm losing track. I'm getting old. And then I, yeah, I started a Substack <laughs> where I write um, like three or four times a week. Um, media criticism. Uh, that's the column. It's a rather presumptuous name. Um, if not, I thought delightfully generic. Uh, the column.substack is in the newspaper column. The column.substack.com. That's where I. That's where I will be writing. 
which I like. I enjoy it actually. Um, I'm, I'm, I, when I slow, do my subtle slow drift to um, soft anti-vaxism and right wingism, I'll let you guys know ahead of time. <laughs> oh, sure, let's go. Yeah. Thank you. We'll make sure we get your Tucker appearances on. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll make sure we tape it. It's about free speech. That's what it's all about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, take care, and thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, and please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful, and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban, so please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye.